I, I very much appreciate the, uh, the invitation to come and speak here. My family has been truly blessed by this fellowship and the people here. Frank Jones and Beverly Jones have been tremendous in my life, as have Mr. and Mrs. Brickner, Dr. and Mrs. Ford, the Mowers, and the Millikens. So my family has been greatly blessed, and especially so when we first came here seven years ago, the McElroys took my kids in and took them uh, horseback riding and, and really helped us to feel a part of this city. So I'm very much appreciative to be here. You know, I have spent my life since I was 18 years old on a university campus. Some university campus somewhere in the country have been from coast to coast, in the north and in the south, east and west, all over different campuses. Many people ask me what I think about students and, and the, the Christian life among students, and I will be very quick to say that I think it's better than it's ever been. I think that the students now are far more excited and devoted to the Lord than when I was a student, and I was very active as an undergraduate student, and nonetheless the students now are more active. I see students engaged in prayer. Uh, for example, at Rice every semester, they organize among themselves a 24-7 prayer meeting that goes for seven days. Each semester they do that, at the end of each semester. So for seven days, 24 hours a day, they are praying and they sign up on the internet in one-hour blocks and then they come to a certain room on campus and they pray. And two or three might come or one might come, but that room always has somebody in it. I'm impressed by that. I'm impressed by their lives. Many ask me, what kinds of things do you do to keep their attention? And I can't dance. I can't play a a musical instrument. I can't sing, I don't do drama, but I teach the Word of God, and I find that there is an enormous devotion to the Word of God. If we would but speak the Word of God and the principles therein, there is great interest among young people. The foundations of truth never change. And as Frank read from Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 1 and 2, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the basic principles of our faith and they have not changed. And Jesus said, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, it's not that we lose our salvation, but we will be called least in the kingdom of heaven if we do not keep and teach them. We might be in heaven, but living in a doghouse. Because it says your name will be least in the kingdom of heaven if you don't teach these things and so obey them. These are the basic foundations of truth for us as believers. And it starts off, it says, that the basic foundation is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. I'm going to come back to repentance from dead works and start with faith and then we'll circle back around. But faith toward God. 
You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If I do not have faith, I cannot please Him. This is the basic foundation of our faith. The basic truth. That we must have faith in God, but not stop there. We must believe that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. If we do not believe that, we cannot please God. So this attitude that we can so easily slip into, oh, God doesn't really care for me, God's never good to me. The scripture says that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And we must believe this. That if I seek God, He will reward me. If we seek God, He will reward us. This is what it says. And look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, where he starts speaking about others. He says, And what more shall I say, for time will fail me, if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of Samuel, of David, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, obtained, performed acts of miracles, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, they became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Look what he says. He says, by faith they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they performed the right acts by faith. They obtained promises. The scriptures are full of promises. But it says they obtained the promises through faith. You and I must exercise faith to obtain promises. So what are the things that we obtain? The things that we obtain are far greater than money. This is not what I'm talking about. This is not what the scriptures talk about. The scriptures talk about the things that are much richer. You know, I... I love this example of a man about in Acts chapter 6. It says that he waited on tables. He was chosen. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And they chose him to wait on tables. And he gladly waited on tables, making sure that the poor widows got their portion. And then in Acts chapter 8, it picks up. And it says, Philip became an evangelist. And he went into Samaria and he started preaching the gospel. And many came to know the Lord. And then he was the one who shared with the Ethiopian, who jumped down out of his chariot, and then was there and got baptized. But it says later on in the book of Acts, actually, actually in Acts, it begins to talk about him. In Acts chapter 21, let's pick up the lesson in Acts chapter 21. So this is about 20, 25, 30 years later, after he had waited on tables. After he had served as evangelist in Acts chapter 21, it begins to talk about him. And there's two small verses in Acts 21 verse 8. And on the next day we left and we came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. You see, he was one of the seven. 
One of the seven that they chose to wait on tables 25 years before that. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Look what it says. Look at the blessing on this man's life. 25 years later, after he had served in the church and waited on tables, he had a home that the apostles came and they stayed in. And he had four daughters, and the scriptures talk of them as virgins. They were good young girls, and they were active in the church. They were prophetesses. These are the blessings that God promises to us that go far beyond the things that the world speaks of. But to have a home, to have children around you who love and honor God. And it speaks of them as being virgins. And what I tell young people is the Scriptures always spoke highly of virginity for both men and women. And it is something to be prized. It is a good thing. It is good for young people. It is good for older people to remain true to their partners. It is a good thing. These are the blessings that God has for us when He speaks of the fact that if we walk in faith, He will bless us. The next thing in Hebrews chapter 6, the next thing that it talks about, it says the faith toward God of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, instructions about washings. Some translations call it baptism. And that's what it is. The instruction of baptism. When Peter stood up and he first preached the gospel, the people in the city cried out, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Be baptized. Baptism is something that God has put before us. It is one of the foundations of our faith. We can't get away from it. And I've met many people who say, well, you know, baptism isn't really important. And I'm reminded of this man in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there was a man, his name was Naaman. And he was a leper in 2 Kings chapter 5. And he came, he came to get some healing from the prophet Elijah. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away and raged. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. It always reminds me of this portion. This was a great general. And he was told to dip himself in the Jordan seven times and wash himself like a little child. And at first he resisted. But then his servants rightly came and they said, if you were told to do something great, like conquer some army, wouldn't you have done it? How much more this small thing? And he goes and does it. And God's blessing comes. And he's restored. 
God speaks to us of baptism. People will say, well, you know, it's kind of a shameful thing. You know, you've got to get up and go in the water and everything. And I say, good, be shamed for the Lord. May you bear a lot of shame for His name. May you learn to do that on a regular basis. And I encourage young people to be baptized. And if you've never been baptized, I encourage you to be. After believing, it is an act that Jesus Himself did and the Scriptures tell us to do. And it is the foundation of our faith. And even if we don't understand, we dip ourselves in the Jordan. And then the outpouring comes. This is one of the basic truths and the foundations that's put before us. The next thing in Hebrews chapter 6 is instructions about washings and laying on of hands. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul starts to, to speak to Timothy and he says in verse 14, he says, just remember what was laid upon you, what was given you upon, in the laying on of hands by the presbytery, by the leadership. There's a laying on of hands that comes. There's a submission to the local church that comes. The laying on of hands. Learning how to submit oneself to a local body of Christ. And this is the same thing that I tell young people. And the same fault that many older people find themselves in. When they fail to walk into sub- in submission to a local body of Christ. The joys of doing that. The protection that comes. Men will come to me and they'll say, how come my wife doesn't listen to me? My kids don't listen to me. And I say, well, why don't you get in church and listen to a pastor? Why don't you get in church and learn how to listen to leadership? And learn how to submit yourself to that. You come under the, the umbrella of God's protection in that. And you watch in time. Your wife and your children will follow. But they're just following your example of disobedience. Disobedience to leadership. I won't speak evil of my pastor. Because He is my pastor. He is my pastor. I will honor Him. Church leadership. This is what we understand. The laying on of hands. He's speaking of the leadership. The authority that comes in the local body of Christ. They mean good for me. And as I demonstrate an allegiance to the body of Christ and to functioning under leadership, God blesses me and He blesses my family. And His blessing and protection is there. The Scriptures say that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Well, when a man starts to walk under the obedience of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in obedience also to the local church, very often authority in his home is not a problem. It's no longer a problem. It is well established. All these things come in proper order. This is what I instruct young people. I tell them, I want you to have a good life. If you have a different theory on life that's different than this book, guess what? Your theory's wrong. It's going to be proved wrong. And long after you are dead and gone, this book will remain. And its truth will remain. It will remain true. The next thing in Hebrews chapter 6, after faith toward God... Instruction about washings and laying on of hands. It says, and the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. In, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that we must be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that He has been raised from the dead and we shall be saved. Believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in our heart that He's been raised from the dead. 
You know, one of the things I like to do is invite my colleagues, professors at the university, to lunch at the faculty club. And as soon as we sit down, I say to them, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? They look at me. Because from their answer to that, I know exactly where they are, and I know what to say next. And I don't have to talk about the weather and talk about the family and lead myself into this and that. As soon as they answer that question, I know where they stand. And if they say, yes, they believe, then I can begin to probe them further. So what does that do in your life? And if they don't believe, we can begin to discuss it. This is the basic foundation of our faith, that Christ has raised physically from the dead. I sat with one religion professor. The students told me, I think he's a Christian, but I'm not sure. I said, oh, I'll find out. And I invited him to lunch. And I asked him, what do you think of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he said to me, oh, it wasn't physical. It was spiritual. Spiritual. Let's look in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20. And let's establish what kind of resurrection it really was. In John chapter 20, Jesus had appeared to the disciples, but one of the disciples wasn't there. His name was Thomas. And in verse 24, John chapter 20, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place in the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Look at Thomas. Thomas is just like people today. He says, come on. A physical resurrection? I mean, you guys are seeing things. I won't believe it. Look, if it really happened... I want to be able to stick my finger through those holes in his hands. <laughs> say, no, that's not going to happen. And I'll, I'll even stick my hand into the hole in his side, all right? That's the only way I'll believe. Verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. Then he said, Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So he appears to them. And he looks at Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. Yes. Thomas comes walking up. He says, Thomas, I want you to do something. You should take your finger and stick it right here in my hand, this hole. It's all right. Put your hand out. Put your finger out and stick it here in this hole in my hand. And he says, now, Thomas, I want you to do something else. You know this hole in my side that was put there by a Roman centurion when he stabbed me? I want you to stick your hand in there. Jesus said to him, He says, reach here your hand and put it into my side. That's a command. Thomas says, it's really all right, I believe. He says, no, you take your hand, and I want to show you something. 
See that hole right there? Put your hand in. In? In. Deeper. More. You feel that heartbeat? I'm alive. This was a physical resurrection. There is no way around it. It's a physical resurrection. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubt in your hearts? See here my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You see, they thought it was just a spirit. And he wanted to put to rest this idea of a spiritual resurrection. It was physical. He says, come here and touch me. See, I have flesh and bones. The spirit doesn't have this. And now just to underscore this, he says. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said... Have you got something here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Jesus ate in front of them. He says, have you got something to eat? What did they give him? Well, they knew Jesus liked fish. He was always serving it. Jesus' favorite food, fish and bread. Give the guy a tuna fish sandwich. This is what they gave him. They gave him a piece of fish. They said, if he eats this, we know it's Jesus, because Jesus loves fish. He took it, he says, just what I want. And he ate it. This is a physical resurrection. We cannot get away from this. A physical resurrection. Jesus has risen physically from the dead. You study this. It is so compelling. So absolutely compelling. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Men in Hebrews chapter 6. After the resurrection of the dead, it says, an eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. There will be an eternal judgment. Many say, oh, I can't believe that God would send anybody to hell. He's so nice. He's so this. He's so that. That's fine. But that's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say there will be an eternal judgment. You can't get away from it. You've got to read a different book. To get away from it. You've got to tear out an awful lot of pages to get away from the fact that there will be an eternal judgment. The scriptures say that there is a narrow road to get into heaven. It is very narrow. But there is a broad way that leads to death. There is a narrow way that leads to life in Matthew chapter 7. And then Jesus cries out, In John, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way unto the Father but through me. Jesus never pointed us to a way of life. He Himself is the life. He never said, that's the way. He said, I am the way. 
There is no other way to the Father but through Him. There is no other way to God but through Him. That is quite dogmatic. But that is what He taught. That is what our Lord taught. That is what we see in the Scripture. He said, there is no way unto the Father but through Me. I am the way, I am truth, I am life. It is all embodied in Me, Jesus says. He is the embodiment of this. This is the foundation of our faith that we cannot get away from. There will be an eternal judgment, the Scriptures say. Now let's circle back and look at a foundation of repentance from dead works. How He calls us to repentance from dead works. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Let's see what dead works are. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He talks about the deeds of the flesh being these dead works. He talks about jealousy and envying. You know, one of the greatest things that's helped me about jealousy jealousy and envying, the words of C.S. Lewis. He said, you rejoice for the other in the same way that you would rejoice for yourself had you received such a thing. And when my colleagues receive these wonderful awards in chemistry, I go up to them and I say, that is wonderful. That is so good that you got that award. I think that that is tremendous. And you know, I really mean it. And it does something in my heart and releases me totally to share in their joy. God gives us ways to be released and to enjoy the things that others have and the things that others get. In this same context, he starts off with immorality, impurity, sensuality. Depending on the version of version of, of Bible you read, it may say adultery, fornication. Fornication is any type of sexual disorder, any type of sexual disorder. It speaks of adultery, it speaks of sex outside of marriage, beyond, outside of marriage, or sex with another partner, another person. While in marriage, it speaks of, of incest, it speaks of rape. That is what fornication covers. And these are deeds of the flesh. And you know what I feel about young people? It's, it says Paul had a vision. And Paul had a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. I think most people are crying out, most young people are crying out and saying, help me in this. I need help. I see young marriages all the time. And they are crying out so often for help in these areas. Where women have these husbands that they do not understand. Their husbands have never learned 
really how it is to treat a woman in the sexual realm. They've never learned. But I assure you, they've never been taught. You cannot demand that a child become a concert pianist if you never give them piano lessons. And most young people are never taught. And because of that, young marriages go through so much pressure. And there is this enormous pain in marriage that occurs. And I know that this is an uncomfortable topic for many, but you know the Scriptures put it right in our face. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. And then he says, if your eye, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In that same context of lust, he says this. Then he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And I studied this portion and studied it, and I'm thinking, is there ever a portion that Jesus spoke more emphatically on than this? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more emphatic portion than this if Jesus says, gouge out your eye and throw it from you. Cut off your hand and throw it from you. Look at the picture here that he gives us within the context of sexual immorality. This is what Jesus said. Should we turn the page or should we deal with it? And I am telling you that our young people are crying out like the man from Macedonia saying, Come and help us. Come and help us. This is what young people want. And if you're in your 40s and 50s and 60s and past this, I urge you to have mercy on the young people. Because it's easy to say, well, you know, we had our troubles, but we got through it in our marriage. Well, let me tell you something. It could have been much better had you learned how to deal with these issues. It could have been better. And all I'm saying is let's help our young people through this. I was in a study For this entire summer, I spent about 200 hours studying this very subject. I was going to write a chemistry textbook this summer, but I decided to do this topic called Scriptural Sexual Ethics because I felt it would help more people than yet another chemistry textbook. Young people feel we have more than enough chemistry textbooks, as it is, and they're probably right. I am not throwing stones And I have loads of my own sin. And I know the pain from my own life. I received the Lord at the age of 18. And I was so dedicated to the Lord. But I had these deep struggles within my mind. A fantasy life that was overpowering me. And I had no idea on how to deal with it. And many young men who are here today are like that man in Macedonia crying out, Come and help me. I want some help. And I am telling you, I am here to help you. You are not alone in this pain. And two, you young women who are in these young marriages and trying to understand this man, 
who you feel has a one-track mind. I am here to help you. Not to condone it, but to say, I have the solution in the Scriptures. It is here. I have the solution. And you know, when Andrew came and he told his brother, Simon Peter, to come and see the Messiah, he said, come and see. He didn't say, you know, if you don't believe he's the Messiah, you're going to hell. He said, come and see. And I'm asking you to come and see. Because I have the solution for the pains in your young marriage. I have the solution. And all I say to the older folks here is pray for the young. That they don't have to go through what you went through in your marriage when it was younger. You know, these issues are the most consuming thoughts of young men. The absolute most consuming thoughts. I was so dedicated to God. I was preaching God all the time. You couldn't go on campus. I had a shirt made. This was back in the days before you could buy Christian shirts. They didn't have them back then. And I still own that shirt. And on the back it says, and I had it made, I've been born again. And it said big letters across my back and I'd walk around campus. I was one of those guys. And I loved the Lord. But there were struggles within my mind. And marriage itself, in itself, does not provide a legitimate outlet for disordered sexual desire. And if it is not dealt with, we condemn our partners to a terribly unpleasant life of sexual objectification. And I'm telling you, the solutions are in the Scriptures. All I ask you to do is don't lower God's standards to your own personal experience. Because God's standards are much higher Remember, in the context of the foundations of truth in our lives, in that very context, he says repentance from dead works. And when we look up dead works, it starts off, the first thing is sexual immorality. What was Jesus' greatest new commandment that he gave us? It's in John thirteen thirty four, and it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. John thirteen thirty four. That you also love one another. This is the only context in which we can understand scriptural sexual ethics. And that is, does this thought, does this action, does this behavior truly image the love of God? If it does not, it is not the love of God. Does this thought, does this action, does this behavior truly image the love of God? And if it does not, it is not the love of God. And I think that both liberals and conservatives greatly undervalue what's here. If liberals didn't undervalue it, they wouldn't be so liberal with it. But conservatives, what happens is, we can become so fearful of it and dealing with these things that we have a self-repression that causes us great condemnation within ourselves. And that's because we've never been taught. And I'm going to give you a piece of the secret here today. There are three ways to deal with this disorder. Three ways. One is indulge, and I don't recommend that one because it will end up destroying your life. The other is suppress, and that is normally what is taught in Christian circles. And I know, I've been around Christian circles for 28 years, and it is suppression. 
And what happens is the fantasy life goes wild. And we become really judgmental because we chain ourselves and all we can do is spit and rage. But the plan is redemption. That is the scriptural plan. Let me give you a prayer that so works for me, young men. Let me give this to you. That so was the only thing that has ever worked for me. And that is this. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She has been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain and take that which is twisted in me because of sin and untwist it. And may I come to see my own sexuality rightly. And go figure. When I pray that prayer, God answers. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of that woman. She's been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. And by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted. And may I come to see my own sexuality rightly. And for women, because of our society, many women are struggling in this area too. The prayer would be similar. I thank you, Lord, for this man. He's been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use him or seduce him for an object of my own physical or emotional gain. And by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted. And may I come to see my own sexuality rightly. I have a five-part <clears throat> five series on this, and I put it on my website. The parts are this. It's redemption is not a sham. It's victory over lust. It goes dead on. Redemption in Jesus Christ is not a sham. You can have victory over this in Him. There is victory. The second part is the true meaning of manhood. With all these images, what does it mean to be a man? You've got to be six foot four with big muscles and women hanging on each arms and be smart and witty and, and, and really, really stunning. Is that what it means to be a man? And I go through and take you through what the scriptures say about being a man. What Jesus said. And then I have the next part, the true meaning of womanhood. Or woman, God's masterpiece. Part four is converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And some of you young people know exactly what I mean. And what is the line for the unmarried? And part five, marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. There is a group of people that have less than 1% divorce rate. Less than 1%. And you say, well, they must wake up in the morning and read the scriptures. That helps, but that's not what they all do. This group of people has something special. It's all on my website. If you go to jmtour.com, jmtour.com, and follow the links to the audio files. And, and there is a, a six-part series. It's actually uh, introduction plus five other parts on, on called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. I encourage you to go there and see what the Scriptures have to help in this area. And uh, uh, if, if you can't find that, it means that you're too old and it wasn't made for you. It is a secure website, I tell young people, in that sense. It has a level of security. And I tell young people, we don't, 
you know, you, you don't want your parents going there. They might hurt themselves. So <laughs> we just, just want to keep this way. This is between us, you know. So I encourage you to go there. This is the foundations of our truth that has been put before us, that Jesus has laid before us. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this wonderful body of Christ. These are truly your treasures. Father, I thank you for the foundation of truth. Father, I thank you that you call us to repentance from dead works, that turning away from dead works. But you're not just calling us without giving us the solution. Father, thank you. Thank you, my Father. Father, I pray for these young people here. Have mercy on them. Lord, I pray that they would have good homes and good families, that they would not be so tortured and tossed about in these areas. And Father, if there's a young man here who has so struggled with this and feels that they can't overcome, Lord, I know that that is the pinprick of faith. And so grant them release, I pray through the understanding of what's in the Scriptures. And Father, I thank You that You call us to baptism. You call us to faith in You. You call us to submission to authority. You call us to the resurrection, to the resurrected Lord. Father, thank You. Thank You that You also warn us of an eternal judgment. Lord, thank You that You have mapped this thing out for us so clearly. Thank You for Your truth that reigns. Lord, I commit these people to You. Find people, I pray Your blessings and Your grace to be upon them. In the name of Jesus, Amen.